Well, welcome to this episode of The Square. As you can tell, we are not in my kitchen anymore. Uh, we're going to be transitioning back to the office over the next couple of weeks. There'll still be a couple of episodes from the house, but um, I'm really excited both to be in this space, but also with human live people. We're six feet across here, <laughs> just, so, just in case. I won't touch it. <laughs> six feet across. Um, but excited to be here. I'm joined by Samantha Flores, who's the director of Hugo and been on past episodes, and Pete Jefferson, um, who is a principal with Branch Pattern, but also has a background in uh, mechanic engineering and building science. Really excited to be with them today. Um, and uh, I, this will start the transition of us wrapping up our COVID-specific content. We still have two more episodes talking about um, design sprints, um, but uh, after that, we're going to begin uh, a lot of the topics that we had originally envisioned for the Square and Thought Leadership, though I'm sure they'll still be colored by the, the COVID pandemic. Um, so let's start off with uh, what we're going to be talking about today. So the, the COVID Best Practices Report, which if you're watching this on the video stream, it's in the description below. Um, it, there's a lot of information from the CDC. There's information from the government on what we're supposed to be doing. What does the COVID best practices report um, have that's different than all of that? So when we think about the information that comes out of the CDC, it's it's really you know helpful for us as individuals to understand how we can protect ourselves and then how we protect our communities um, by masking ourselves, by washing our hands, by not touching doorknobs, things like that. Um, what we are taking is we're taking that information and applying it to the built environment. So we're really looking at how can we design spaces to be um, different but helpful and intuitively helpful to people so that when they're in our buildings they don't need to be told you have to stand six feet apart they just intuitively know that this is the distance or that they intuitively know that the air quality is much better because we've enhanced our ventilation systems and things like that tell me a little bit about how this came about so when we were you know when we were thinking about the situation that we're in, we're all at home, we're all working from home. Um, we as architects naturally have the, uh, the call to duty where it's like there's something going on and we want to help. And so we really started looking into everything that was coming in through the news, understanding our built environments, and really you know, taking a look back into history a little bit and understanding that our spaces, our buildings, our behaviors, they're all really informed by our health practices um, and health safety. Safety, that's that's a historical thing. You know, um, we have a sewer system and, and plumbing systems built into our cities and into our buildings because it's a much more sanitary option than than the other option. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something that's just common practice and common standards. So we started looking at this and thinking, well, what standards are gonna change? You know, our behaviors are already changing. You know, you see someone on your side of the sidewalk, you you go to the other side. Yeah. Um, our behaviors are already changing in response and I think it's it's kind of fun to look back on history and see you know what behaviors have changed because of past pandemics, because of past crises, um, even just because health uh, safety and awareness changed. Um, yeah. Something that I, I like to think about is um, the spittoon. It's 
you know, back in the day, the it was spittoon. everywhere. The spittoon. It's kind of a random thing to think about. <laughs> well, you know what a spittoon is, yeah, right? Sure. <laughs> the the little dish that you <laughs> yeah. spit into. Well, back in the day, spitting was completely normal. I mean, everyone and their dog would just go around <laughs> spitting, <laughs> and um, and you would see spittoons in restaurants next to tables. You would see it in entries. You would see it on the train, um, and and you don't see it anymore. It's not yeah. a part of our infrastructure anymore, and that's because um, there were there were you know instances where we realized that spitting spreads germs and just just that one you know um, highlight just made us understand that this is not a practice that we should continue and slowly but surely we removed that you know thinking back into um, smoking for instance we used to be able to smoke anywhere and then yeah. suddenly we started changing the way that we designed our interior layouts to have smoking and non-smoking and now almost nowhere in restaurants do you yeah. have smoking areas so our architecture has always kind of been defined by these human behavioral practices and so we think that there are real opportunities to look at how standards might change uh, because of this current pandemic. So this is not a report that is solely from Hugo, is that right? Right. So this report was um, about 100 different people contributed to this report. We had a lot of Corganites that participated for sure, and Hugo led the, the effort in this, um, this report. But uh, we also had outside contributors. We had industrial hygienists. We had mechanical engineers. We had cost estimators that also participated. And um, we had behavioralists participate and indoor environment air quality um, experts that were giving us information as we, as we went. Branch Pattern was also a huge contributor yeah. to this um, publication. So, Pete, let's talk a little bit about that. Tell me, let's start off by telling me a little bit about what um, building science is. Sure. Uh, building science is it's kind of an umbrella term for uh, really a lot of different disciplines. I don't know that anybody can say they're a building scientist because it involves aspects of architecture and engineering, but then also physics and chemistry and biology. So really building science, we think of more as a practice that it involves all those disciplines. Um, really, we look at, I would say, like three main things that we focus on. Uh, one is building health. The second would be durability of buildings, making sure that they're built to last. And then the third is resource conservation. So um, constructing them in a way that is healthy, long-lasting, and uh, energy efficient. That's that's kind of the sweet spot that we're always trying to, to strike for. What are some of the big changes that you've seen because of the pandemic? Yeah, I think one of the biggest changes just overall is uh, the invitation that we have to the conversation now. It used to be really hard at times to talk about building health uh, and have a platform for that. That's completely different now. That is not an issue at all. In fact, it's everybody calling us now, what do we need to do? Uh, we've had projects that have incorporated a lot of good things and maybe didn't certify that they were healthy buildings in the past that are now reaching out to us and asking what they can do to get that, that plaque on the wall that demonstrates that it's, it's a healthy building. But yeah, looking forward, it's, I just think it's gonna be a completely different time where when you start a project, you have to start with building health. How do you construct it in a way and design it in a way that's going to work for people long-term? It's interesting that you say that. You know, last week we talked to Jane, we were talking about the psychology of trust. And when you and I were talking earlier, you mentioned that there were a lot of buildings that had already been built, but were going back to get uh, well and reset and fit well certifications solely really for the 
um, building of trust with the employees feeling confident in coming back to work. Right. It's uh, most people aren't experts. Most people aren't building scientists or architects or engineers. So they they need some form of communication to them that they can trust the space that they're going into. Uh, you can send them a report and something that's really technical. For most people, that's way above their heads and what they can understand. Uh, I think that's the interest, part of the interest anyways, in certifying is it kind of takes a really complex subject and then can narrow it down in a way that you can communicate it to tenants, occupants, and say, here's, here's a third party seal of approval that this building is certified for health. So I, we see a lot of property managers and landlords and developers looking to pivot and actually obtain some of those cert certifications now. You, you mentioned that it, you have this great platform now to kind of have these conversations. Why was that not there before? Yeah, uh, I think in the U.S. anyways, we are a really litigious society, unfortunately. And when you start talking about building health, um, again, it's a complex issue. First off, most people think they're getting it when they construct a new building. We have lots of data that shows that they're, they're often not. Uh, something like thermal comfort, for example. When I would try to bring up a conversation around designing for thermal comfort, a lot of people would just dismiss that and say, it's fine, you know, we, we, we have comfortable buildings, but they've never actually tested, they've never surveyed. And then when we go in there, we find out that like 60, 70% of the people are uncomfortable in their space. So it's that, that data and that feedback that a lot of people aren't doing. When it comes to air quality, uh, that aspect of health, it's, it's probably even worse. I, I think people are, a lot of property managers and landlords are afraid of knowing what the quality uh, is like in their building there. And what we're starting to see happen is uh, with IoT and kind of prices being driven down on, on sensors and technologies, people are actually starting to bring that stuff into their space themselves. I actually, on the shelf back there, have a, uh, a really nice air quality monitor, but a really nice one now is only like 500 bucks. Uh, so people are actually able to take that into the, into the space. But yeah, unfortunately for a long time, a lot of building owners didn't want to know because they felt like if they knew, they would potentially be liable for hmm. what's happening in their space there. And we heard that response quite a bit. So now that you have this great platform, you know, uh, due to the pandemic to be able to have these conversations, what do you think the next, you know, big milestone is that'll contribute to people feeling safe going back to work? Yeah, I think a lot of the things that we're talking about can help. Um, providing people with data, providing people with third-party certifications, all those things can be helpful ultimately, and we've been racking our brains on this. I, I think until we have a vaccine though, people are gonna have some level of skepticism uh, and some fear, honestly, in, in going back to the workplace. I think that's the, the biggest struggle that, that we have is uh, no matter what we're doing in the space, until that vaccine's developed and deployed, uh, people are just gonna have inherently some, some reservations about going back to the workplace. Well, so Sam, then what is it that, you know, what are some of the best practices before the vaccine happens and then maybe even after the vaccine happens? Yeah. 
Well, so in our publication, the way that we kind of break things down is it's not um, it's not a notion of time because time is a little irrelevant to yeah. all of us that are working <laughs> from home. Um, but it's really about you know pre-vaccine. Um, then there's a time period where there's um, mass availability of testing, and then there's post-vaccine. And so when we're looking at different solutions, we're looking at what's immediate, what can we do today that's pre-vaccine um, that can help. Um, but actually, what we don't want to do is just deploy knee-jerk solutions. We want to make sure that our pre-vaccine solutions um, are beneficial in a post-vaccine world Got it. as okay. well. Cool. So um, tell me a little bit more about some of the specific conclusions you guys have on behavior. Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously there are certain behaviors that the CDC is recommending. Wash your hands, stand yeah. six feet away. Um, but we, we actually understand that um, people don't really adhere to those once they're in a social situation when they've been deprived of, of some, their yeah. social liberties for a little while and they've been, a, 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 you know, working from home and a little locked up or um, not being able to see their friends at school. And so um, what, we're, what we're taking a look at is, you know, really understanding how we can engage people, how can, we can uh, give them information transparency I think Pete you alluded to that a little bit um, information transparency is key and so what we've been taking a look at are some of the the technologies that we've been looking at over the past few years that have been emerging and seeing that this pandemic is actually a catalyst for a lot of those technologies um, one of those is a digital twin you know we're looking at the um, the user engagement applications of a digital twin and how a building can operate and then you know alert different people of you know potential viral spread um, it can also help us us with you know uh, touchless accessing points throughout the building and help manage those systems and also help, help us manage capacities in different areas if you know that someone um, if you know that there's a 50 person capacity in the cafeteria space in your building um, and it's at 49 then maybe you're more likely to go to the smaller cafe in your building or a cafe down the street because you'll be out in the open air so really we're starting to see how technology can manage those behavioral changes um, without forcing it on people but actually just giving them the information so that they can be aware they can take ownership and um, enable themselves to have a healthier lifestyle so Sam, two things that I saw that were really, I kind of kind of caught me by surprise in the best practices report were that um, with the plexiglass and the temperature readings that a lot of people are doing when they go into work, those actually you found aren't best practices. So we, we think that there's, you know, every building has to assess and every company has to assess what they're, what they're willing to do. Um, we think that those are both um, perception based. So when you, there, there's a perception of when you see the plexiglass in between, um, say an open, in an open, open office work environment yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you see them between the desks, you think, okay, well, I, if I sneeze or if someone sneezes next to me, it's going to capture it. I'm good to go. But that actually may not be the case. If you sneeze, you think of it as like a smoke plume. And once it, once it comes out of your mouth, yeah. um, it plumes over and goes over the plexiglass. And if you have, you know, ventilation right above you, um, it'll just take those aerosols and carry them throughout the open throughout the office yeah. environment. Yeah. And then, so, so you have to really be aware of the layering of a um, it's just it's not applicable to or it's not efficient to just apply wholesale Got it. Um, so you really have to take into consideration where you're putting your plexi barriers or if you need those plexi barriers um, the other thing with the temperature readings that you mentioned there are a lot of buildings there are a lot of uh, companies that are that are selling the the temperature readings that um, you can add on to the exterior of a building very easily um, what we have found in specifically to covid um, it spreads really easily when you're asymptomatic 
it actually spreads most when you're asymptomatic. And so that means that you could come into a building, not have a temperature and be um, very contagious. Yeah, be spreading it to the whole building. Right, <laughs> and so to have your temperature taken before you come into the building, it's actually not helpful in any way, but it's a perception thing. So if you're trying to manage perceptions and that's your only reason for adding that, then, then that could be a possibility. But if you're watching your budget and trying to make smart moves, it's probably not a consideration we would recommend as a response to COVID. All right, so then tell me, tell me some of the best practices you found. I think I read something about the, the touchless technologies, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, we've actually been looking at biometric technologies for years in the aviation world. Um, we have been, you know, part of some, some studies testing it with TSA. Um, we have been working in a lot of different areas and a lot of different equipment. Um, we do think that uh, regardless of if surfaces carry or do not carry the virus, that touchless processing is going to be an ex is going to see a lot of acceleration post COVID-19. And, and that's because um, whether or not a surface has is has the virus on it, yeah. people are so much more aware of what they touch. This actually happened before COVID. You know, people were very aware of what they were touching. People were, you know, not wanting to touch elevator buttons because those are one of the, the dirtiest surfaces right. in the building. And so we do think that, you know, touchless processing can be um, something that's a lot more beneficial for, uh, for large buildings. It also can help with the security issues. Um, it can help you access different points or um, control access to different points as well. And then we, we also um, believe that it can be tied into um, payment in digital wallets. So it makes it very, very easy to, if you, if you work in a commercial building that maybe has a cafeteria or a cafe, um, to go down, access your digital wallet through your face or your biometrics, your iris scanning maybe, and um, pay that way without having to bring your belongings down to the cafeteria. Got it. So Pete, are, is, if there was, uh, something that kind of stood out, and I, and I know the best practices is uh, reports broken up into kind of four different chapters, but if there's something that stood out to you as, as something that's, that's the highest recommendation, what would you say? Well, I think in terms of highest recommendation overall, it, touchless goes so far because it, it, it addresses the fomite transmission, which we're, we're still getting kind of conflicting guidance on how big an impact that is, but let's say it's half of what uh, the, the transmission's responsible for. Anything we can do to avoid touching surfaces that are shared by other people, that's a big part of it. Uh, I think about all the stuff that, that we, we impact and we're providing guidance on. It's way more complex than keeping surfaces clean and not touching them. You know, we're talking yeah. about sy systemic changes in buildings overall. Maybe that's the other half of the equation, but it's really hard to do. So I think uh, the touchless to, to Sam's point, the folks that we're talking to, they're looking at that long term like we should have been doing this already. So I think that's that's going to be one of the big changes. So there's some really, obviously, really positive things that we're, we're able to look at and, and kind of put into place. Are you seeing any negative things because of the pandemic and our response to it? Yeah, I think there's some definitely some challenges on our side. When we look at what the the research is guiding us towards, not just for COVID-19, I should point out that a lot of the strategies that we're, we're talking about from the, in the building science world, things like humidity, filtration, outside air, uh, bringing more of that in, those are things that are all shown to have uh, positive impacts on reducing flu transmission too. So those are some things that we're seeing done now in response to COVID-19 
but long term have potential benefit for uh, reducing flu transmission too, which is really impactful on on society in general anyways. It's just we haven't really realized it until some of the more recent conversation. I, I think the unfortunate side effect of some of that stuff is increased energy use and that is something that we're grappling with uh, there too. I think I'm personally concerned because I associate global climate change as a health issue too. Uh, all of the energy that we generate comes from some place. A lot of it is dirty power, uh, which then emits not just CO2, but particulates in the air and compromises health for people that are the most vulnerable anyways. Um, so we don't just want to throw energy at the problem. I think that's a, a poor long-term choice for us. In the short term, while we're dealing with the pandemic, uh, I've kind of been using this analogy of we sort of have this fire raging and we need to put it out. So yeah, you throw water on it and you deal with the water damage later. But I think it's important to, to realize that we need to be thinking about short, medium, and, and long-term strategies too. Uh, so what we do today to address COVID-19, we may want to revisit what we do in buildings for, for long-term health, but also the, the uh, energy resource conservation as well. So as we start to wrap up, tell me a little bit about the HAPPY tool. Yeah, so the HAPPY tool is actually something that we've had for 10 years, uh, have probably underutilized it, but certainly not over the last few months. Um, HAPPY actually stands for Health and Productivity Performance Estimator. So we originally built it 10 years ago because we were doing a pilot project with the General Services Administration, and they kind of challenged us and our research team to try and quantify the human aspect of some of these building improvements that we were making. We were doing them under an energy conservation project, uh, but then we looked at the, the human benefits as well. And uh, we were able to build a tool based off of existing research that looked at things like thermal comfort, ventilation rates, just overall indoor environmental quality issues that affect personal productivity and health, and then quantify that. And, uh, if you're familiar with the well building standard, I think they've done a nice job of elevating this conversation. But at the time, we found somewhere between like 20 and 40 times greater economic impact based on quantifying the human cost as we did with the energy cost. So, you know, personally, that kind of changed my, my approach to building design. I'm an energy geek at heart, but realizing that a lot of the ways that we can, we can leverage good efficiency is through good health uh, changed my approach. So the happy tool is something that we've evolved and grown over the last decade, uh, continue to grab new research and include that. Uh, Harvard's COGFX study a few years ago allowed us to create a new ventilation module in that and look at something like cognitive function as a result of uh, things like CO2 in the space. But yeah, a few months ago with the pandemic, you know, personally, my news feed was nothing but uh, people trying to sell something the first few weeks of the pandemic. And everybody was trying to say that their product or their widget, whatever it was, is, is the thing that makes buildings safe and uh, eliminates COVID-19. And a lot of it was, I mean, most of it was unsubstantiated. But it did point out to us that the people that we work with are going to have to make some tough choices about moving forward 
uh, both for COVID-19 and for long-term health. So we built a new module within the tool really focused on probability of infection. Now the research on COVID-19 is so new that we can't really build a tool specific to COVID-19, but there is loads of research on influenza A. And so we were able to take that and apply it and, and build out a new module within the tool. And the things that we're really looking at the most are humidity, filtration, uh, ventilation rates, and uh, recirculated air rates there. And so the, what the new tool allow us to do is construct a box basically uh, that matches the room dimensions that you're studying, the number of people in it, the duration that they're in the space and what their exposure risk is, and then make good design decisions based on probability of infection. Ideally, you shoot for the lowest rate of infection that you can get. My hope is that people will also use this in conjunction with energy modeling as well. Uh, and I say, say it that way because we're gonna release this tool to the public uh, here in the next month or so. And that's how we really hope to see it used. So people are making good decisions for building health, occupant health, and uh, energy efficiency as well. So as you can tell, we are just scratching the surface on all the information that's in the best practices report. Fortunately, um, if you're watching this before 10 a.m. Central Time, there's a webinar today, the link will be down in the description, um, where you can hear a lot more about uh, this topic. Um, and if you're watching this after 10 a.m., um, then over the next four weeks, uh, Samantha and various other people, including Pete, um, will be uh, hosting webinars on different topics having to do with the best practices report. Um, and again, all that information, if you're on the video podcast, will be in the description below. And if you're in the audio, check out the website. Um, we're so thankful that you joined us. Thank you guys for, for being with us and sharing all your knowledge with us. Um, like I said, we're still going to be transitioning back and forth. So I think we'll have two more episodes in my kitchen. And then hopefully <laughs> we'll be back uh, at Corrigan permanently. So thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you next time.